Hi, you're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host this week. Today, we've got two returning guests, Kevin Book from Clearview Energy Partners and Senior Associate here at CSIS, and Liam Denning, a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Uh, columnist. Welcome back, Kevin and Liam. Hi. Hi. Great to be back. Uh, so this week, uh, we struggled with what to call the topic for our discussion, uh, and in honor of the, the great LL Cool J, decided uh, don't call it a comeback. Energy security rears its head once again. Uh, and so wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about why all of the sudden uh, the president tweeted about oil prices, uh, why we seem to be back in this period of time where energy security is a point of conversation. Is it just sort of a momentary thing that comes with $75 oil, or is it uh, a longer-term trend that we might see in U.S. energy policymaking and the way that we talk about energy? Uh, so I thought maybe, Kevin, just to start with you, maybe some background on how do we think about energy security and why does it go away sometimes and come back other times? Well, Sarah, it's a good question. Uh, and there's two explanations. There's sort of the detailed wonky explanation, which you can count on me to give. Uh, and there's the one that all politicians recognize, which is the inverse relationship between polling numbers and gasoline prices during election years. So energy security, the way it, it, it might properly be measured is in, in terms of import dependence uh, or in terms of economic leverage. And on both fronts, the U.S. is considerably more energy secure than it was, say, 15 years ago. So in the, the 15 years between 2002 and 2017, uh, the energy intensity of U.S. GDP, the amount of energy uh, required to, to deliver a unit of GDP, fell by about 25 percent. The energy share of personal consumption expenditures, what came out of Americans' pockets, also fell by about 25 percent. The production of petroleum in the U.S. went up by about 70 percent, and the net imports of petroleum fell by about 70 percent. So you have these enormous changes in terms of the, the fundamental balances. You could say, well, look at this. Every unit with which the, the U.S. economy grows is one that uses less energy. Therefore, we feel it less. Therefore, we should be happier at any price gasoline. But when you go into those household energy expenditures, it turns out averages are extremely deceiving. Uh, first of all, two-thirds of that household energy expenditure is, a, is gasoline. We're still very reliant on cars uh, for our transportation and cars that burn gasoline. So for all of our other discussions here on this podcast about EVs and, and the like, uh, this, this pump is the one that we're still watching, uh, not some sort of electron pump somewhere else. So um, the, the politicians who look at that uh, either do or do not get phone calls. And the question of whether or not they get phone calls isn't just a function of the absolute cost of energy. Uh, it's a function of how well the economy is doing at the same time. So different states, different regions are differently exposed depending on their driving patterns and their incomes. But in the aggregate, it's the big moves that matter, not the small ones. Every summer, the price of gasoline goes up as refiners change over to a summer blend with different environmental attributes. And so from what the president seemed to be doing, if, if I were to choose between the two modalities, the, the wonky one or the political one, it looked like he was taking the political route and thinking about the extent to which ordinary voters might be feeling pump price pressure. And what about the markets, Liam? I mean, uh, it seems like we've been hearing more about energy security premiums within oil markets over the last several weeks. Yeah, I think um, it's, it probably stretches back a bit further than that. It, it goes back to 
um, the uh, you know when when you had the kind of the the, the Ritz roundup in in Riyadh um, late last year, that 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 was when I started to notice people talking more about um, geopolitics again. Um, and we are we're sort of back to where we were about ten years ago, but it's it's different in some respects. So if I go back to say two thousand seven, you know, I can remember back then having sort of surreal conversations with uh, hedge fund guys in London who who were going into sort of detailed discussions about maps of northern Iraq and and kind of you know, what the Kurds were doing and that sort of thing. Um, it was quite obvious that a lot of them had just sort of read read up on the Kurds that morning before before we spoke on the phone. Um, but the um, the difference this time, I think, is that we're seeing uh, geopolitical premiums or, or something that's called that at the front end of the curve. So we're seeing it in spot prices. Um, it hasn't really gone all the way out on the curve. And I think that probably reflects the obvious factor of, of you know, tight oil production and the fact that there is some worry around disruptions, you know, whether it's Venezuela or whether it's uh, the Iran deal going away or, or what have you. Um, but there is, for now at least, still this view that if prices at the front end rise enough, um, and by the front end I mean sort of not just the spot price, but maybe, you know, 12 to 18 months, the, the kind of the hedging window for U.S. producers – if that ha if that goes up enough, then we'll see more U.S. production come on reasonably quickly, which again is a very big different factor from what would have happened, say, ten years ago, um, and that that will therefore be a self-correcting thing. Now that could change, and I think that the thing we need to look out for over the next twelve months is whether people begin to start worrying about a longer-term trend. You know, is is Venezuela down and out for several years? Uh, is Saudi Arabia just intent on holding production off the market? Is Iran or, or some other conflict going to blow up? And is demand going to keep growing at this kind of frenetic pace that it's growing at the moment? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, you know, it's interesting because I think one of the ironies of the period of time that we've lived through, and I think for everybody, you know, Kevin, your point about there being kind of a wonky interpretation of energy security versus the more popular version, which has a lot more to do with oil markets and oil price movement and the perception of expense and the perception of scarcity and those sorts of things within the market and within sort of policymakers' window of what they care about is different from what you experience in terms of the actual delivery of energy services to people, which is at the core of the concept of energy security. It is a little ironic that we've gone through a period of time where we've talked about energy supply surpluses and all sorts of things. And our policymaking, which I want to get to in a minute, has sort of reoriented itself around this idea of surplus and excess and position of power. I'm not going to say the D word yet. Um, but at the same time, in the case of Puerto Rico, and you know, quite frankly, when you go down to Houston and talk to people about whether or not things have completely gotten back to normal uh, in the wake of the hurricanes that we experienced last year, we've had you know a terrible track record maintaining energy security in this country over the last year and a half. I mean, Puerto Rico, I think the Rhodium Group did some analysis, and it was the second largest um, power 
outage in terms of uh, hours uh, uh, per service lost uh, in the history of the world and certainly the largest in the history of the country. And so we can get into, you know, Puerto Rico politics and all of those sorts of things later. But it does seem that at the same time, we feel like we've got all of these energy resources. We've had these really terrible instances where we haven't actually provided those basic energy services on an ongoing basis to, you know, a part of the United States. So one of the things that caused me to think about is how much of our understanding of policies that are geared towards energy security really do change a lot, right? So like we have this, you know, you'll see it being said that in times where prices aren't high, the U.S. does things that are not necessarily in its interest from a policy perspective or it neglects energy security uh, principles or policies or investments. Um, and, And that same thing is made you know, true of companies. You know, it's sort of that companies have sort of a short-term time frame horizon that they act differently based on where the market is and how secure or not secure they feel. How much evidence do we have that that's actually been taking place? I mean, Kevin, from a policy perspective, have we been acting differently over the last several years as prices were low in ways that are concrete uh, that you can point out to as a policy differential or difference between a time where we're feeling energy secure versus a time where we're not? We certainly can. First, I mean, the the nature of our energy policy in the United States has three R's to it. It's essentially reactive to energy supply shocks. Uh, It tends to be regional, which is why politically it's so hard to write energy laws. There's a lot of differences across different regions. And it's regulatory in nature, which is to say between those laws, There's a lot of wiggle room that the government can use to do things with the laws that they have, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse, sometimes not so efficiently. Um, One of the laws, though, that's been on the books from the the 70s, it really established the the inaugural era of U.S. oil security, was the Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 1975, which did two things. It, It first established a strategic petroleum reserve which was an absolute insurance policy designed to protect against a physical interruption in the supply system. And it also mandated fuel economy standards for automobile manufacturers on a national basis. Both of those things you can point to in recent years as having been reviewed or revised in potentially substantial ways. The SPR, absolutely. There have been six laws in the last four years that will, for fundraising, not emergency purposes, sell 300 million barrels of the 695 million barrels that were there at the start in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That is nothing short of a liquidation of our energy safety net. Uh, But the fuel economy standards are another aspect of it, too. The Trump administration is reviewing the fuel economy standards, and in in our view, at least at Clearview, we think is likely to propose a a way of weakening them uh, from the original targets set at a time when gasoline prices were quite high. The, The one other thing, though, is not just about price, but about shock itself. The evolution of energy security, the way these laws were created, has moved from a place where the U.S. is very seldom, with the exception of Puerto Rico, which you're right to point out, is, a, is an, an, an amazing break in our otherwise well-supplied energy markets. Uh, it's moved from a physical disruption template to a high-price template. And so even the reactions that we might have gotten in the high-price template have been deadened somewhat by the fact that the biggest part that Americans see, again, in their pocketbooks, is, is, has a lot of slack capacity, or until recently, had a lot of slack capacity in between the production system and the inventory base. Liam, like from a market perspective and thinking about what companies are doing, I think 
when periods of price, when prices were low, we heard a lot, particularly about in the shale patch in the U.S., sort of living within cost, right? I mean, what are we looking for in terms of corporate behavior or in the market as a kind of an energy security, a change in sort of the environment around how people are acting based on what they think, uh, how well supplied they think markets are going to be? Well, I think we've seen a lot of rhetoric out of the the oil industry about um, you know needing to fundamentally change how they do business and how they um, you know scope out projects and standardize their processes and that sort of thing. Uh, they're all kind of making the right noises. I think it's too early to say how real that change is. In some ways, and I sort of surprised myself in saying this, it, it feels to me like the majors get it a bit more than the independents in this case. Uh, I, I do genuinely think, for example, last year when um, uh, you know Van Burden at Shell talked about lower forever prices. Now, he wasn't saying that oil is going to stay low forever, but he was saying that if the, if the big oil model was going to work for the long term, um, given its kind of short term and longer term challenges, uh, it needed to find a way whereby um, you know every project wasn't a bespoke thing that always ran, you know, two times over budget and took two years longer to develop than, than it should. Um, for the independents, it's, it, 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 they're still talking the language of living within their means. And I think there are good reasons why they should be trying to do that. I don't think we're really going to know until we go through, say, the rest of this year and, and say, if we end 2018 with you know, Brent up around 70 or 80 bucks a barrel. That's when we'll really start to see um, whether th th they're actually committed to that because the history is is that generally they're not. And um, uh, just, just switching away from the oil sector for a minute, it was interesting to me to see Ford announce the other day that for all intents and purposes, they're just pulling out of uh, sedans in the US and going all in on trucks and SUVs, um, which I think is, to me, is driven by the fact that they've, they've looked at what um, Fiat Chrysler has done and is thinking, wow, we should be doing that. Um, and obviously, their best-selling truck is the F-150. Um, is it the right thing to do for the long term? I mean, I can remember, you know, Alan Mulally, the old CEO, you know, talking at their earnings and, and saying how 350 gasoline was a tipping point and that was forcing the industry to change. Um, so we could see that cycle just come back again. What, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that you see in this discussion is whether or not the the entire discussion about strategy relative to energy supply scarcity or abundance, to use sort of the cliche terms, is cyclical or something is structurally changed. And I think that that's a question that all the all companies are having to deal with, but also policymakers are having to deal with as well. But, you know, OPEC also has that dynamic. And I, you know, this idea that um, a recent paper put out by Bassam Fatou over at the Oxford uh, Institute for Energy Studies, which I thought was really good, basically says, you know, maybe OPEC has decided that over the long term, they're just going to have to forever manage markets because we are in a period of time where the market just runs differently. The the incursion of, or the sort of the existence of U.S. tide oil and the way that it produces and comes on and off the market, plus the competitive pressures, 
in a more um, supply-assured kind of environment means they're always going to have to play that role. And so they have this near-term thing where they've got to assure the market that they're not going to unravel this deal that they're currently in, which is bringing market stability. But in fact, they have to talk about this multi-generational alliance that they're going to have because there will never be confidence again that there is scarcity in the market. And I think it's You know, whether you buy into that or not, it sort of brings up this question of whether or not people think we're in a position where energy security is really going to just be about investment cycles being on time and those sorts of things, as opposed to anyone feeling that there's sort of an existential, you know, crisis to supply, so like peak oil supply, um, and actually believing that the, the the real risk is letting prices ever go too high again and allowing other things to come into the market that really, really will compete um, and, and, and cause them real problems. How much do you think about the environment we're in now as being one where um, we're we're on the cusp of a much more permanent kind of transition versus this is just same old, same old. Prices go up, people get concerned. Prices go down, people are not concerned. I think it is different. Um, it's different fundamentally because of shale, but not just because of shale. Uh, Liam uh, very effectively, I thought, communicated a message we had tried to communicate maybe less effectively in our own reports uh, by uh, reprising some data that show that U.S. and other OECD consumers have always been pretty price flexible, but now you can see some flexibility on the demand side in the non-OECD. Prices are moving uh, up and demand is going down. Uh, prices are moving down and demand is going up. Uh, that that correlation is it's not you know it's not all you need to understand the dynamics of Chinese oil consumption by any means. But it it suggests that this is not the world we've been living in for some time. There's a price responsiveness for a variety of underlying reasons on the demand side. And on the supply side, there's a a different price responsiveness too. So if you calculate a a very simple elasticity of of, uh, supply based on price, and you look at OPEC's performance over the last seven or eight years, you get like a negative 0.3. So what does that number mean? Well, you have to talk about what elasticities mean, but uh, I'll leave that for for your faithful listeners uh, to Google if they don't know it cold. Uh, But if you then compare that to the the elasticity of the shale producing areas, the way EIA tracks them, so we use their data, uh, you have about a positive 1.2. So the magnitude of the response to price on the supply side is about four times greater in recent history based on shale. Now, you, in both cases, the data set extrapolate uh, apparent conclusions from the past about the future. But the point is that these things are different relative to the deeper past. So the more recent past shows a world where demand is more responsive, and at least this shale component of supply is also more responsive. So yeah, this is different. Now, structurally, there's other big things going on too with, you know, it's it's a bit strange in a world growing at one and a half million barrels per day per year to hear everybody talking about the end of oil as we know it and the takeover of the electronic uh, cars that are driven by robots that replaced our jobs. Um, but that is still a long way off. Uh, I think it's, it's much more useful perhaps to think about the, the short and medium term dynamics of price response. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with everything Kevin said. I, I think there's also there's just a broader change in the environment that isn't just to do with um, you know supply and demand, so to speak. I mean, the 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 whole security 
apparatus under which the oil market has grown up since the end of the Second World War is being called into question, which, you know, and frankly, what's going to be the implications of that? I don't know. But in general, I would tend to think that if the largest consumer, which used to be thought of as having ever greater dependency on imported volumes of oil, suddenly isn't that and is actually also a little less interested in underwriting the security apparatus that keeps the oil market flowing, that has to have some kind of consequence. And not just for America, but for countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like China, which, uh, you know, is already more dependent on imported oil as a proportion of its consumption than the US ever was, but doesn't have the same kind of navy to, uh, to, to be happy about that. Um, and then there's obviously also the... Um, the issue of, uh, of climate change. Um, and I think that what that raises for me is the question of, of what energy security really means, because we tend to think of energy security in, in terms of, you know, import dependence and what the price of gasoline is and, and, and you know, whether the grid is strong and that sort of thing. Um, but it means different things to different people, because, you know, if we were only concerned about supplying our own energy to ourselves, then we'd all be burning coal, except, you know, we'd all be living a lot uh, shorter lifespans. Um, and uh, But on the flip side, you know, if you're sitting in, say, Riyadh or Caracas or Moscow, energy security means a very different thing because it's the security of your, you know, uh, the, the, the payments that essentially grease your society and keep it running. And uh, yes, you probably think about climate change and you think about pollution, but that perhaps ranks a little further down the uh, the functioning of your economy. Mm-hmm. The one of the I wanted to make sure I also point out and be fair, energy security clearly hasn't slipped off of everybody's agenda, right? I mean, uh, we I think the U.S. government uh, in certain branches and departments still talks a great deal about, you know, providing for energy security and uh, both for the United States and its allies. Nord Stream 2 will forever provide us a lot of energy security conversations uh, uh, in a very, very conventional uh, sense in the way that we've always thought about European energy security. But there's one new way that energy security has popped up in the U.S. energy context. And this is a very sort of localized one, which has to do with power markets uh, in the Northeast. And whether or not baseload energy supplies, particularly that supplies by nuclear power, uh, is fundamental to U.S. national security. In fact, starting to use national security architecture to try and uh, keep those things solvent uh, and uh, within the, that market construct. Is this new? Is that a new feature of the U.S. domestic energy security dialogue, or have we seen this movie before? Well, it's it's not new, but it is it is definitely a remake of an old movie. So, uh, post-war electric power demand growth was in the order of one and a half to two percent per annum. And if you go back to the Energy Policy Act of 2005 in the recent wake of blackouts and a California power crisis, there was all sorts of national security aspect to that. The California power crisis marked an occasion where a 1950 law, the Defense Production Act, was used to compel uh, the the provision of natural gas to the California electric generator. Uh, And uh, that 
that was really a moment where the, the argument was was pretty clear. There were there were military bases in California that were exposed. Uh, there was a national security argument to be made. But to any general, I mean, you know, the, the army marches on its stomach and an economy provides force projection. So a strong economy is essential to, to military superiority. And without electric power, our economy cannot be strong. What's interesting is the difference between that incident and, say, today. Now we don't have undersupplied electric power markets. What we have are differently supplied electric power markets. And the differences are a function of both technology and policy. It is not just the low cost of renewables, although it is a compelling story in its own right, but renewable portfolio standards and preferences built into policy that have changed the way markets are being supplied. And so the argument of whether or not there is a national security risk by relying on intermittent resources is a different argument than not having enough. It's maybe not having enough of the right stuff. And it's in that context that we find the Defense Production Act. You know, just a sidebar on this law. I mean, not everybody knows it. It's an important law. It was it was passed in September of 1950, uh, a couple months after the U.S. entered the Korean War, and it included things like the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So it, it was a very big law already in that regard. But for the purposes of what it was really meant to do, its name says it all. It was about giving the government control over the means of production for a post-war economy that wasn't ready to go back into levee en masse, full societal war. This was a tool for the president to make sure that the government could get the means of production when it needed it. And so that's the tool that's been discussed in the context of Northeast power markets and the uneconomic performance of legacy nuclear power plants. Uh, it's a very interesting and, and obviously very controversial question, uh, but it, it is a new definition of electric power security for sure. Any thoughts on the? Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I, I agree. It, for me, it's it's it fits into a a wider context, which is, it's just it's just hard to see any of this discussion around energy security, particularly around the Northeast grid, uh, as being really a very honest <laughs> discussion, because it's quite clear that there are agendas there that are being played out, because we've seen repeated attempts to try and do something. And, and in some ways, I sort of look at this as... Um, this debate around uh, energy security in that context, it, it, it's almost like someone playing the piano wearing boxing gloves. Like it's it's all very clumsy. There's no nuance. And, and it, it tends to be framed, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, well, we need to keep these plants open, but we'll ignore um, what the consequences of that might be, of, of that might be for the environment or the smooth functioning of the markets or encouraging other technologies or this or that or the host of other things. And and part of the issue, obviously, is that, as, as Kevin said earlier, particularly when it comes to the power market, so much of regulation is local. And the, the, the idea of using a blunt tool like that to force an outcome on a market uh, just just strikes me as, as madness and, and, you know, just just short term reactive thinking. It certainly seems I was at a conversation recently about this, that there's um, there are a lot of places in which the lack of ability to solve some of the problems within these power markets about how to understand the value of the various attributes that different kinds of generation bring to the market is certainly something that's forcing a conversation about 
what belies the basic sense of resilience and energy security within those markets, just because, you know, it's sort of uh, the analogy at one of our events uh, on this topic was, you know, we've sort of parked a car on a hill, right? And you can go up or you could go down, but you probably just can't stay on the side of the hill forever. And the longer you try to do that, the more you got to find, you know, inventive ways of trying to stabilize your situation. And that seems to be in markets that aren't fundamentally trying to transform themselves, uh, quite frankly, seems to be one of the things that we're running to uh, into on the electric power side of the equation. It's just interesting that you often find in places where there is probably a policy or a market-based solution, folks look to energy security to try and kind of bail that out where other options uh, can't be brought to bear. Well, I don't know. Uh, I guess as a parting thoughts, maybe is energy security uh, going to stay for the rest of 2018 as a new defining feature of the energy policy discussions uh, that we've been having, uh, or are we going to have more of the energy-dominant uh, export-led uh, policy that we had come to realize was part of the Trump administration approach to these things? Well, Sarah, one tweet is not a summer of birdsong. Uh, we really shouldn't assume that this was more than a tweet in a moment uh, until we have other evidence to support it. I, I, I di- like everyone else, jumped in with both feet. Uh, and uh, and yet at the same time, I find myself waiting and wondering uh, whether I have any place to go with this. Uh, the dominance dialogue uh, is really a question of whether energy is our highest order of importance as a matter of national policy. So much it pains me to say this, but it's not, not for the Trump administration. And it's because of energy security that, that that's true. Uh, the, essentially, the, the scarcity crisis of decades past is it for the moment gone, with the exception, as you noted, of Puerto Rico? Um, and that, that means that politicians can think differently. Uh, it, it is, in short, rare and unusual for them to be worried about oil supply and price right now because there's been so much emphasis on the good news story of domestic production growth and so much freedom to focus on other things. So much, in fact, that some of the things they're focusing on are bad for domestic production growth. Things like tariffs and things like even worse than tariffs, quotas that limit access to to raw materials. Uh, But it doesn't look like it's the top order of the moment. Uh, Liam mentioned Iran and and Venezuela and geopolitical crises that could really impact supply. That could keep the story going. Yeah, and I I think uh, certainly OPEC will do its best to keep energy security in the headlines. I mean, and they, they sort of have to. I mean, the whole policy rests upon keeping the market nervous about uh, not just threats to current supply from situations like that in Venezuela, but this constant refrain of not enough is being invested uh, and we're going to hit this supply gap a couple of years down the line and what are you all going to do then? Um, uh, I mean, that obviously remains to be seen, but I would expect um, particularly the the rhetorical drumbeat around security will continue this year, but I think it will take it would take significant real action around issues like Iran or Venezuela for the market to necessarily keep going that way. I mean, one of the things that we've seen emerge this year is just this huge um, net speculative long in in the crude market, um, which has obviously helped to, to bid prices up and, and keep them high. Um, of course, the flip side of that is if for whatever reason, the speculative part of the market suddenly decides, actually, 
doesn't look like much is going to happen with Iran. Or something did happen with Iran, but those barrels are still finding their way to market. That can reverse very quickly. And, and that's sort of the, the, the very risky aspect of, of what OPEC and its, its associates are trying to do at the moment. Well, great discussion again, Liam and Kevin, and uh, look forward to doing it soon uh, on another topic. Uh, Again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.